Lamar gives to Perry. Perry through the middle. Touchdown, Michigan! And the Wolverines have won it in overtime. Michigan wins by a score of 27 to 24. And the team storms the field to mob Chris Perry. WCBN Sports. Well, hello and good evening. And welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly talk show of current events, media analysis, etc. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be flying solo tonight on a crisp, cold night here in Ann Arbor. Still hasn't really been plowed much downtown, so don't expect much there. And uh, I guess we're used to that. Also, uh, it's flu bug season. I'm sort of coming out of the uh, respiratory version of the flu. I hope you are all well at your home. And uh, But there is a stomach version of the flu going around, too. So I'm not one who really usually gets uh, a flu shot. Seems like I get the flu uh, about half the time when I get the shot anyway. So anyway, I've made my bed, and now I have to lie in it. And uh, being that it's the end of the year... I uh, like to do a focus on books, and of course, partly because it's uh, dark early, and a lot of people find the time uh, to do more reading. Uh, it's you know you can't go outside and ride your bike or play frisbee. Uh, there's more time to read in the winter, generally speaking. It's very cozy with a blanket on your lap and a cup of tea, and of course, uh, it's also uh, a gift-giving season. Whatever your cultural slash religious affiliation is, there's uh, gift giving involved in this time of the year. And uh, books, of course, make for a lovely gift, uh, the gift of ideas. And I have three actual hard copy physical object books tonight. I'm not one who uh, reads ebooks or Kindles, and I'm not going to go into a rampage uh, uh, tirade on that. Uh, that's not what I'm here for. Uh, but I will be uh, reading some samples from three books uh, that came out in the last couple of years about the great city of Detroit. And I hope it's a subject that listeners, listeners are not sick of uh, because Detroit is in our backyard. We are in the greater Detroit area. Uh, I was born in Jackson, Michigan myself. And um, you know, Detroit is the big city in the area, although it, strangely, I didn't really, I've never lived in Detroit. Uh, I've never worked in Detroit. I have good friends who have done both, and so I've heard a lot of their stories. Uh, but I go to Detroit frequently uh, for hockey games, concerts, uh, museums, other cultural events, and even uh, shopping sometimes. So um, but it's strange, uh, my entire childhood, uh, I could, by the time I was in my twenties and going to a lot of concerts, you know, that's when I started going to Detroit regularly. Um, but I could probably count on one hand the time that I had been taken to Detroit as a child, because for my parents, of course, Detroit was a scary place. Uh, we went, you know, once to the zoo, um, and that was about it. That's really about all I remember. Once to the DIA, I never went to a Tigers game. I never saw the Red Wings at Olympia. Uh, Tigers game at, you know, Tiger Stadium, the old original one, of course. But uh, anyway, I do uh, go to Detroit pretty regularly nowadays. And uh, 
I would like to uh, highlight some excerpts from these three books. Uh, it's become a national story, of course, but uh, each of these three books uh, is written by locals, natives, uh, people who know the story from the inside out. And the first one I'm going to read from was published last year. Uh, none of these are brand new books, but I do strongly recommend them all. Uh, the first one we're going to get to is by Mark Benelli, and it's called Detroit City is the Place to Be, the Afterlife of an American Metropolis. I'm going to put on my reading glasses here and uh, read you an excerpt from his introduction to this book, because I think it really sets the table nicely for a good conversation about this troubled city. And he begins... Back when I was a boy, growing up just outside of Detroit, my friends and I beheld any mention of the city in popular culture with a special thrill. We loved how Detroit was deemed terrifying enough to be chosen as the dystopian locale of Robocop, the science fiction film set in a coyly undated near future, when Detroit had become so dangerous that the outsourcing of law enforcement to an armored, heavily weaponized cyborg would seem a prudent and necessary move. When the producers of Beverly Hills Cop decided to make the hometown of Eddie Murphy's fish-out-of-water detective our own, because after all, what could be more antipodal to Rodeo, Rodeo Drive than Woodward Avenue? What more alien presence to the Beverly Palms Hotel than a black dude from Detroit in a Mumford High t-shirt? We delighted in that, too. We certainly tested the speakers of our American-made Dodge hatchbacks whenever a Detroit song found itself played on one of the competing local rock stations. Who would be churlish enough to flag these songs as relics of an earlier era or point out how the lyrics pivoted off the city's reputation for chaos, riotousness, destruction, to such a degree that the very titles, Panic in Detroit, David Bowie, 73, Detroit Breakdown, Jay Giles Band, 74, Motor City Madhouse, Nugent, 75, could be mistaken for headlines from July 1967. To this day, when the plangent opening piano chords of Journey's dreadful, I'll add, don't stop believing, Blair from a dive bar jukebox, who among us begrudges even this most overplayed of power ballads a respectful split-second cock of the head and perhaps a secret inner smile as well, all because the protagonist of the song was born, quote, and raised in South Detroit. No matter that there wasn't really a neighborhood called South Detroit, or that the person living there wanted so badly to get the hell out, he took a midnight train going anywhere. My parents subscribed to Time, and I can remember excitedly reading a story at the height of the tension between Ronald Reagan and the Soviet Union detailing the effects of a single nuclear bomb dropped on a major American city. The city, the editors explained, had been chosen entirely at random. But of course, it was Detroit a choice that by 1982 probably came across to most locals as an ungallant case of piling on. I actually remember that Time Magazine article and was sort of shocked and appalled that uh, that city had been chosen at random. Still, at 12 years old, I devoured the shout-out as if the city had won some national lottery. The article began, Say it is late April, a cloudless Thursday evening in Detroit. Assume further that there is no advance warning. Beginning at ground zero of the blast and expanding cons uh, concentrically, the story proceeded to describe in gruesome detail the fate of Detroit and its residents. If you happened to be watching a baseball game at the old Tiger Stadium, for example, you would immediately go blind. Then you would burst into flame. But, the writer continued, unhelpfully, the pain ends quickly. 
The explosions blast wave like a super-hardened wall of air moving faster than sound crushes the stands and the spectators into a heap of rubble. Skyscrapers topple. Commuters melt inside their cars. Even Canadians in neighboring Windsor, this I found particularly satisfying, would be fatally pelted with fragments of the Renaissance Center, hurled across the river by 160-mile-per-hour winds. Following the geography of the article to my family's own suburb, I learned that only a minute after the blast, fires would already be raging and tens of thousands of people dying, survivors crawling from wrecked homes to see an eight-mile-high mushroom cloud in the distance. But survivors! See? I pointed out to my little brother, even at that early age, displaying the hopeful spirit that all Detroit natives learn by necessity to cultivate, like a rare breed of flower. One of us might live! Detroit used to be the greatest working-class city in the most prosperous country in the world. With the explosion of the auto industry, it had become the Silicon Valley of the Jazz Age, a capitalist dream town of unrivaled innovation and bountiful reward. My family came from Italy, our neighbor from Tennessee. My dad's friends were from Poland, Lebanon, Mexico. All had been drawn to Detroit, if not explicitly for the auto industry. My father sharpened knives and sold restaurant equipment than because of what the auto industry had come to represent. The cars rolling off the assembly lines existed as tangible manifestations of the American dream, the factories themselves a glimpse of the birth of modernity, in which mass production would beget mass employment and in turn mass consumption. Workers, eager to claim their share of the unprecedentedly high wages on offer, migrated to the city in droves, doubling Detroit's population in a single decade, from 465,000 to nearly a million making the city by 1920 the fourth largest in the nation. The Art Deco skyscrapers bursting from the downtown streets like rockets must have seemed like monuments to Fordism's manifest destiny. Everything pointed up. Often, people incorrectly isolate the 1967 riot as the pivotal Detroit-gone-wrong moment, after which nothing ever went right. In fact, the auto industry had been in a serious economic slump for at least a decade prior, with tension in the black community festering for even longer and the axial shift of jobs and white residents from city proper to suburbs solidly underway. What the civic unrest, aside from hastening the process, did permanently change was the national storyline about the city. If, once, Detroit had stood for the purest fulfillment of U.S. industry, it now represented America's most epic urban failure, the apotheosis of the new inner-city mayhem sweeping the nation like LSD and unflattering mutton-chop sideburns. The fires of the rebellion launched a long-running narrative, one that persists today, of Detroit as a hopelessly failed state, a terrifying place of violent crime and general lawlessness. As John Lee Hooker, who had come north to work on the assembly line at Ford and later made his name as a blues man in the juke joints of Detroit's Hastings Street, sang in his song, Motor City is Burning, My hometown burning to the ground, worser than Vietnam. That, for as long as I can remember, might as well have been the unofficial slogan of the city, Welcome to Detroit, worser than Vietnam. Things proceeded apace, that is to say, horribly, despite a brief lull of hope offered by the election in 1974 of Coleman Young, the city's first black mayor. With the emergence of crack, drug violence, 
Uh, with the emergence of crack, drug violence bloodied the city, while Devil's Night, the night before Halloween, traditionally a time for relatively harmless pranks involving toilet-papered trees and soaped car windows, turned into an annual citywide arson festival, peaking in 1984 with an estimated 800 fires. As a media event, Devil's Night proved irresistibly photogenic, the smoke hanging over the city seeming to haunt its distant twin in 1967. Rather than two lit ends of a lifetime, of a timeline, the fires came to feel like a single conflagration, one that had never really been extinguished. The timeline itself, the entirety of the 70s, merely a long, slow, burning fuse. Well, this is from Mark Benelli's Detroit City is the place to be, <clears throat> the afterlife of an American metropolis. And I'm going to uh, cut now to quickly mention the next book, uh, which I'm going to be reading from. It's called Reimagining Detroit, Opportunities for Redefining an American City. This by John Gallagher. And published in 2010. And I'm going to read from his chapter, Detroit Today. And there's another chapter in this book that I'll hope to feature an excerpt, for, excerpt from uh, perhaps next week if I don't get to it this week. And so here we go from Reimagining Detroit Opportunities for Redefining an American City by John Gallagher. To understand Detroit today, its uniqueness and its special challenges... <clears throat> It helps first to visit a city like Philadelphia. During the summer of 2009, as I was writing this book, I toured many of, of Philadelphia's distressed districts with a guide named Bob Grossman. Bob runs the vacant land restoration programs for Philadelphia Green, which is the city's nonprofit tree planting and community gardening organization. In his younger days, he worked as an auto worker and then as a builder before his love of gardening and volunteering led him to his current job. As he drove me through several neighborhoods in Philadelphia's north side, all of which have been scarred by poverty, the drug trade, and loss of jobs, we passed many signs of hope. Small urban farm gardens and vacant lots his group had rescued with cleanups and fencing and regular maintenance. While I did see some vacant buildings and peeling paint, I had expected much worse from my tour, some collapse on the scale of what I see in Detroit. All these Philadelphia districts look surprisingly solid and even healthy to my eyes. Brownstone buildings stood in unbroken ranks around many parks and squares, and the vacant lots remained in the minority. The city showed good bones. Philadelphia still looked urban. Visiting similar at-risk districts in Detroit, the most striking characteristic is the vacant feel of the city, those ghost streets with just one or two houses left, those expanses of what Detroiters long since have taken to calling urban prairie. Detroit has lost roughly 50% of its population since the 1950s, but Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, and other cities have lost about the same percentage, and St. Louis has lost even more. Yet, those other cities don't convey the same emptiness and feeling of abandonment. There's a cable television show called Life After People that, with computer-generated effects, illustrates how nature will reclaim our great cities the moment we're gone. Grass will grow on our streets, trees will take roots inside buildings, Detroiters point out that nature already triumphs in many parts of their city today. Trees and overgrowth reclaim the vacant lots, wildflowers bloom amid the rubble, 
Grass and weeds stand so tall and lush in July and August that a wanderer can feel overwhelmed with the creeping intensity of it all. Stifled in vegetation, to borrow a phrase from Willa Cather's My Antonia. It's this scale of vacancy, these vast patches of rural landscape within a city of several hundred thousand residents that defines Detroit's uniqueness among American cities. This is probably the most significant vacant property problem in the country, Dan Kildee told me when I spoke with him on April 23, 2009, at the offices of the Genesee County Land Bank, which, of which he was the chair. I've visited virtually every city in America that has this problem, he said, and no city has a more profound problem than Detroit. One seasoned observer is Robin Boyle, chair of Wayne State University's Department of Geography and Urban Planning, Recruited to his post from his native Scotland in the early 90s, Boyle says that he was immediately struck by the uniqueness of Detroit's wide-open spaces. These spaces resist normal planning, he told me in one of our many conversations. Dealing with voids within a city lies outside the experience and even the language of most urban planners, architects, and social scientists. Planners and architects build and manage growth, while social scientists... Economists, sociologists, epidemiologists learn to use data, mostly from the U.S. Census, to study, characterize, and help distressed residents. Nobody trains to deal with the emptiness other than by filling it with traditional development, housing, retail space, industrial parks. But that kind of development is inadequate to deal with the scope of Detroit's prairies. In late 2009, Boyle challenged his Wayne State students to create innovative solutions to Detroit's vacancy. Think of the scale, Boyd urged his students. I kept saying, 139 square miles, which is the land area of the city of Detroit. I kept throwing that number up on the wall, 139 square miles. How does your prescription, wilderness or farming or neighborhood village development, how does that assist in the 139 square miles? But the monumental scale of the problem dwarfed the students' imaginations, and they turned in mostly block and neighborhood level solutions. Skipping ahead a little bit here. The second reason for Detroit's striking emptiness today is the quality of the city's housing stock. Detroiters boasted for generations of having the highest percentage of home ownership in any big city. The ability for working-class families to buy their own homes and even to buy a fishing boat or a cottage up north remained Detroit's proudest achievement through its auto century. But vast numbers of those working-class and middle-class houses sprang up so quickly that there wasn't time or space for the painstaking construction and deliberate planning we see in, say, the neighboring Gross Point communities. For example, the city of Highland Park, a one-time farming village, now contained entirely within Detroit's borders, mushroomed from 400 residents in 1900 to 40,000 just 20 years later. While there are some wonderful arts and crafts bungalows in Highland Park, as there are good houses throughout Detroit, there are also many quickly built wooden houses that have not withstood time as well as the brownstones of Philadelphia and New York and Chicago. Detroit, too, is a relatively humid place, nestled as it is alongside the Great Lakes, and the humidity is not kind to houses with wooden siding, especially when they don't get the upkeep they should. Detroiters also say the city has a high water table, meaning you can dig down just a couple of feet in many places to strike water. To be more precise, the glaciers that came through thousands of years ago left a dense layer of clay a couple of feet below the soil, so that rain and snow melt doesn't percolate down easily. The water perches atop the surface of the clay, trapped there, so it's no surprise that wet basements are a problem throughout the city. Combine the hasty wood construction with a humid environment, then layer on poverty rates among the nation's worst, 
and the result is a city that loses many houses to decay. Metal strippers and arsonists worsen the problem many times over, but Detroit would be suffering a deteriorating housing stock even without them. Without meaning to, civic leaders have contributed to the city's wide open spaces by ambitiously demolishing many vacant structures in the expectation of new development, much of which never happens. In 1999, the city mapped plans for the I-94 Industrial Park, a project meant to spark an economic rebirth by attracting new companies. It was the old build it and they will come idea. The city bought and raised hundreds of houses, adding to property it already owned, creating a 189-acre development-ready park. You have to see 189 acres of vacant land in the middle of a big city to understand the term urban prairie. The problem, of course, is that only one building has been developed in the park, and the rest of the site remains awesomely empty. Skipping ahead yet again. He provides a graphic, and this is again John Gallagher in his book Reimagining Detroit, Opportunities for Redefining an American City. Um, a map that appeared on the front pages of the Detroit Free Press, uh, created by a uh, staff artist at the Free Press, Dan uh, Pitera, uh, and it compares Detroit to three other major cities. It provides you with a grid of the basic outline of the city of Detroit and then drops right into it the city of San Francisco with a population of 751,000, square mile area 46.69. Boston with its population of 581,000 uh, also fits into Detroit with a very small square mileage of 48.43. The very densely populated Manhattan one and a half million uh, f people crammed into a square mileage of 22.96. Well, Detroit, their population uh, hovers around 933,000 with a square mileage of, again, roughly 139 square miles. And... Uh, this book goes on. The lengthiest chapter is about the potential and problems for urban agriculture, but there are also some important uh, suggestions for uh, redesigning what currently already exists. Um, and so I'll come to that in a moment. But just in case I uh, run out of time and uh, don't get to mention this book, I'm going to put aside John Gallagher's book for a moment. Because these two books that I've read so far, Benelli's and Gallagher's, deal with the uh, decay of Detroit, the problems of Detroit, the possibility for uh, futures, but the current stasis that sort of uh, continues to uh, linger like some sort of uh, flu bug that just won't leave. Uh, but there, as of course anybody who listens to WCBN knows, there's lots of things going on in Detroit. There's lots of uh, people who we care about who still live there and who've always lived there. And so I want to mention a book that tells you uh, what's going on in Detroit. And this is called Belle Isle to Eight Mile, An Insider's Guide to Detroit. And it's edited by Andy Lynn, Emily Lynn, and Rob Lynn. Rob Lynn, a friend of WCBN. And this is a, a wonderful book, uh, a perfect uh, gift suggestion for somebody who uh, likes to do things in Detroit but wants to know more about where to go and what to do. 
across 12 chapters, it divides the city into sections, downtown, midtown, southwest, uh, eastern market, Corktown, upper east, lower east, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Chapter on Hamtramck and Highland Park, a chapter on the suburbs. And there are maps, there are descriptions, there are shop listings, uh, galleries, uh, clubs, um, you name it. It's all in here. And uh, this book is written, edited, and designed and printed in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, buying this book for a friend or a loved one would uh, support local writers in their local economy uh, trying to revitalize their once great city. Uh, and still great, right? Because I think the music that's come out of uh, the Motor City it can hold its own with any other city in the world. You name any other major city with uh, a you know, famous stock of uh, great musicians who've come from there, and I think Detroit can hold its own amongst any of those. Well, with the uh, six minutes that remain in the program, I'm actually not going to have time to... Uh, review this last chapter that I wanted to from John Gallagher's book. So I'm actually going to save that for next week. And I'm going to uh, beg your uh, humble forgiveness as I coast out a few minutes early with a little bit of music. Uh, as I say, I've been battling this respiratory uh, flu, and this is the most talking I've done in about 40 hours. So my throat's pretty, uh, pretty much done for the night. But I would like you to stick around for Yazoo City Calling coming up next. And I don't know if we have more 78s uh, in store for us tonight, but regardless of the format, the music will go right into your soul and even warm your bones. So stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling coming up at 7 o'clock here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be back next week with another edition of Gray Matters.